Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Global Marketing Show. And as you may or may not know, the show is brought to you by Rapport International, a high-quality provider of foreign language translation interpretation services. And they frequently launch tidbits, which is interesting information. And so we, we brought you one here today. So everybody tap your nose. It's a gesture that's found in many cultures. In the U.S., it typically means like on the nose or you're right. But in Italy, it can mean watch out. Well, in the U.K., it means you're being nosy. So, you know, do you know another meeting for tapping your nose? And what is it? Go ahead and share it with us. If you want to join the Facebook group, that's a good place to put it. You just look for global marketing and growth. Tap in and get the conversation going. So today, I'm... I'm very interested in this conversation. Our guest today is Vladimir Gendelman, and he's the founder and CEO of a U.S.-based company called Company Folders, Inc. It's an award-winning presentation folder printing business. He's a thought leader on entrepreneurship, small business, and business marketing. And he's a regular contributor to publications such as Forbes, Inc., and Fortune. He also has employees in the Ukraine. So we're going to talk about that and what's going on with his businesses and his employees. So welcome, Vladimir. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. So I want to start out with right now you have employees, yet in Ukraine that's been invaded by Russia as as we're talking about this, but this isn't the first time. Back in 2014, you had employees in the Donetsk region when Russia invaded. Can you tell us about that and what, what happened then? And then we'll get into today. Yeah, uh, back then, in 2014, it was very tragic and scary and dangerous, but now thinking back compared to what's going on right now, it was a walk in the park. Because when Russia invaded in 2014 and they started shooting and everything, it was it was kind of isolated to that area. And I was able to help my uh, employees to move to Kharkiv quickly. So they moved to Kharkiv, they started new lives, they found places to live. Some of them had kids in Kharkiv, like really, really put roots in. And uh, of course, eight years later, not even seven and a half, they are living through another invasion. And now that affects the whole Ukraine. There is no safe place in Ukraine anymore. Because anywhere you go, it's, 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 there, there are shootings. Some places more than others, of course. But shootings are experienced everywhere. So, so back in 2014, you moved your employees quickly to Kharkiv and they set up new homes and new offices. And then 
was the place they were living in Donetsk, was that taken over by the Russians? And did Ukrainians stay there? So what happened to that area that was invaded? There are Ukrainians still there. So some of my employees still have parents who live there, but it's destroyed. There are Russians there. But once again, if once they take over, right, they have no reason to fight anymore, even though shootings, you know, periodically were happening anyways. And yes, they left everything behind. Some of them owned their apartments. You know, in, in, in cities, usually people live in a big building with apartments. And uh, a lot of times you can actually own the apartment, which would be our equivalent of a condominium, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so so two of them owned their own apartments and, you know, that they made paid money for and uh, which is majority of their net worth and of course after invasion all that went down to nothing and and to this day some of those buildings are been shot at and you know the value of those apartments is pretty much went down the drain so now they moved to Kharkiv and uh, they started new life they started assimilating in Kharkiv Granted, it's the same country, it's the same everything, right? But it's a different city, different friends, different atmosphere, different everything. Um, So they're doing that. And one of them bought their own apartment finally at the end of 2021. So, you know, let's just say six months ago. And they did not even finish remodeling the place as the war started. And now all this money that they put in, and keep in mind in Ukraine, you don't necessarily have the system of mortgages like we're doing everything else, right? So all the money they put in is now gone. The value of the apartment is gone. So that's one of them. Another one put down the deposit on the place, which was majority of their money, did not even take possession yet. And Russians invaded. So now that's another horrible situation. Granted, this is just money, right? So they're they're alive. So at least that's all good. But yeah, there are a lot of devastation there associated with everything that's going on. So where's Kharkiv in the country? Has that been one of the areas that's been really invaded? Practical level to the ground right now. It is very, very close to the Russian border. And it's definitely, uh, like, I look at the photographs and can't recognize it. So tell me, where are your employees then? So here's what happened. I have seven employees in Ukraine. Four of them were in Kharkiv, one in Dnipro, one in Nikolaev, and one in Lviv. So when the war started, the one that was in Lviv crossed the border into Poland right away. Like we're talking about within hours before they issued the law that man between 18 and 60 cannot leave the country. So he got very lucky with that. And the reason he did that is because his sister lives in Poland. So he just went over to her. Then the four guys in Kharkiv were in Kharkiv under all the shelling under all the shootings, as I was talking to them on the phone, I heard rockets falling down and I heard the sounds of destruction and devastation, which was horrible. So they were in those conditions until 
there was a little opening between the Shellans and at different times they left the city and they went to the, uh, what is it, to the west, uh, towards the Lviv. And as the result, some are kind of settled in Vinitsa, some in Ivano-Frankivsk, some temporarily stayed in uh, Poltava and then went further to Vinitsa and Odessa region. So, so they went further away from the Russian border. Correct. But they're still in Ukraine. Correct. Also, mm -hmm. when this whole thing started, the war started, here we consulted with the ex-army colonel who told us just general strategies of during the war, like the kind of areas that would be important for Russians to take over. And obviously, the same areas would be important for Ukrainians to um, protect. And we literally looked on Google Map with their addresses to see who's located where. And we were able to instruct some of the people to move to different areas just to be safer. So that worked well. So now, you know, they moved and they obviously wanted to get out of the country. So one guy... So one guy left right away, as we mentioned. The second guy, Dennis, he has three kids. And when you have three kids, they let you leave because that's a lot of kids to handle. So he's, he left with his family and he is now in Germany. So then second guy, sorry, third guy, Sergey, he, due to the health condition, he received the paper saying that he's not good enough to basically serve in the army. And with that paper, he was able to leave the country. Where's he? He is in Poland. And then fourth guy, Anatoly, was able to leave literally by running across the border through fields. Not the official part of the border, right? But through the fields between Ukraine and Moldova. And then he ended up in Bulgaria. So from that perspective, four of them are safe. The remaining three, uh, the one who was in Nikolaev is still there at home because he has elder parents who, who couldn't live. So he stayed to look after them. The one in Dnipro is also at home. He kind of doesn't see anywhere to go. We're talking about over 6 million misplaced people. In, in Ukraine, within Ukraine, what's called internal refugees, plus another, uh, what is it, like over 4 million by now, I think, of external refugees that are in other countries. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it's really hard to find places to stay, you know, supplies, food, and everything else in populated areas. So he's in, at home in Dnipro. And the Another guy, Eugene, is with his family in a uh, region of, that is relatively safe right now. They, they do hear bombing once in a while in all these areas, but not like constant shelling or anything. Oh, that's a different perspective when you say that they're safe still. They only hear bombing. I mean, that's just so far out of my realm of experience yeah. to, yeah. So talk to me about, I mean, the emotions, you've got to be terrified, trying to protect your family, not knowing where you're going to live, having lost everything. And then every male between 18 and 60 is supposed to serve in the military. 
So they also have a commitment to you to do the work and they want to make a livelihood. Like what are the emotions when they're deciding whether to leave, stay, fight? And are the fifth, sixth, and seventh guys that you were talking about, I caught Eugene's name, but I don't know the other two, are they staying and they're fighting them? Or how, how do they, where are their emotions and how are they handling this? So the men between 18 and 60, they're not supposed to fight. They cannot leave the country in case they have to fight. Because right now they have enough, I guess, army or, or, or uh, volunteers, civilians who are also fighting. Uh-huh. So, so they don't have to go fight, but they still cannot leave the country. They're right now finally back to work. And, and I think it helps them, you know, keep their mind occupied with something else. As far as the emotions, scared, tired, at the same time, the ones who are, you know, the guy who's in Vinitsa, Eugene, um, he has a family, he has little kids, he has a wife, right? So now the concern is for the family, the fact that, you know, he's not in a position to really do anything about what's going on and, and so on and so forth. But from what I understand, the majority of emotions are fear and just tiredness of everything that's going on. What are they thinking that's going to happen? Are they really living day to day? Uh, it's not even day to day. It's more like an hour by hour. Tell me more about that. They, they have no idea what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They don't know what's going to happen, you know, later on today because everything changes and, and could change very, very quickly. They are obviously hoping that the areas they're in right now are, will remain safe at least for a while with hopes that if they will have some kind of heads up, if they have to leave. Yeah. Okay. So let's switch back to you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your company and then we'll get into why you have employees in in Ukraine and how it is for you. So tell me about your business. Sure. So the company, as you mentioned earlier, is called Company Folders, Inc., and we are a printing company. When, when I started out, uh, it started out as a boutique of presentation folders, binders, and envelopes. Um, it was folders originally, and then we introduced binders and envelopes with the idea that we're specializing in presentation covers, right? So we are not, we're not necessarily experts in the actual presentations that go inside the folders or actual content that goes inside the binders or actual content that goes inside the envelopes, right? That's your business. You know what needs to go there. Uh, mm-hmm. But what, what we're really experts at is the covers for it, which is where folders, binders, and envelopes come in. And we offer the largest selection of die cuts, print methods, uh, finishes, paper choices than anybody else out there. And then we have another side of the company where we do all the promotional products as well. Okay. And so all the presentation folders that you do, I'm on your website now, which is companyfolders.com. Mm-hmm. You can, you custom and print Absolutely. people's logo on there. Logo, okay. images, you know, we foil stamp, we emboss, we, we can do fork color printing, we can do uh, spot color matches, we can do... Uh, not that we can do, we do do all sorts of lamination, gloss, matte, soft touch, uh, combination of print methods, come up with some amazing, amazing. Uh, yeah, pieces. and you've got some pretty impressive clients. Thank you. you want 
share who some of them are? Well, some of our clients are NFL, Google. We did work for Walmart for their subsidiary, Jets.com. Uh, we work with a lot of big colleges, universities, uh, including Duke, Loyola. We do uh, Chick-fil-A, Army, Navy, on and on, Ford. Wow. Uh, PGA. I don't know if I can remember all the. <laughs> yeah, well, those are ones but, that I Bed Bath and see. Beyonds, Nestle, Nestle chocolates, Hershey's chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also see Sotheby's, Siemens, Hallmark. Yeah, yes. you've got some yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah. names. Okay. And why do you have employees in the Ukraine? What are they doing for you? So, employees in Ukraine are programmers, designers, and testers quality assurance and they are the the people who work on our website okay and why did you hire there because you're based in detroit right correct so why did you end up hiring in ukraine so i was born in kharkiv ukraine myself and when i started the company i don't remember exactly how but i was participating in some kind of online forums, discussions. There was no social media back then. So the closest thing you had were either a forum or a discussion board. And through those sources, I actually met this guy who helped me make a first website. And of course, back then, the standard of living between US and Ukraine was way bigger. The difference was way bigger than it is right now. And the rates were way lower in Ukraine. So it, it actually make economical sense. And on top of it, the way I saw it was I can help somebody from my hometown, which was great. And when it came time to do another round of a website, I naturally found another guy there. And after that, I realized that I probably need somebody full time to constantly work on a website. So I hired one guy, then another guy, then another guy. You know, that's how we have seven right now. How many employees total do you have? We're at about 20 people. Okay. And the rest of them are in Detroit or what's, where else do you have people? Yeah, Detroit. Okay. And so anything that can be done uh, from a distance, you, how did you decide what positions to hire in Ukraine and what ones to keep in Detroit? Well, so in Ukraine in general, uh, the technology is pretty, is at a pretty high level. So when it comes to programmers, designers, that's, that's what they're good with. Outside of that, call center would be a good thing to outsource to Ukraine, but we don't have a call center here because we get all of our uh, customers through the website. And, and we do have people who answer the phones, but they're here locally in Detroit because I think it's important to have people locally here who constantly experience the product, who see how it's all made and um, yeah. Okay, so you have your website people and then who's, so people who answer the phone are in, De- are in Detroit. Do you have an yeah. office there? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm in the so, office right now. Okay, so you have about 10 to 15 people in the yeah. office and then 70. There. And what other positions are in the office? Uh, the office office, we have... Uh, you know, whatever your usual office staff is, phones, writers, production, just the general stuff. 
It's just really interesting to see that because a lot of people in the United States are still hesitant about hiring people internationally. So it's interesting to see which ones you you know, have found that are an advantage to hiring in the Ukraine and which ones you'd still keep local in the office. So that's very, very helpful information. When you were first starting the company and managing it, what were some of your biggest struggles about managing a virtual workforce? That's a really interesting question. My biggest struggle with managing workforce, period, was making sure that they are working. Mm. For whatever reason, I had this notion that people are not going to work and they're just going to waste my time. So I would like walk around and like, you know, look, just look at things and, and, and constantly ask questions. And I mean, that was micromanaging, right? That's really what it was. Mm -hmm. And, and micromanaging people in remote locations is way harder. So obviously that posed a different challenge. But luckily, over a few years, I learned that micromanaging is not a good thing, not a healthy thing, right? And that you don't evaluate your employees based on whether they work or not. You really evaluate them based on the results they produce, right? Yes. Because at the end of the day, if they work 24-7, and produce nothing. Nobody needs that. And if they never work, but produce amazing results, that's excellent. So, so how do you measure results? Now? It, it's different for everybody. For, you know, for developers, we have lists of tasks that need to be done. And, you know, it's, it's we, we know roughly how long it takes to do things. And, you know, they, we have deadlines. And as long as things are done by deadlines, then everything is good. Okay, so that's a that's a huge learning curve that a lot of business owners have to go up is how do you manage that? Because I see the ongoing discussion with other business owners is whether you do time tracking or do you manage to OKRs or do you do that? So it's a it's an interesting curve to get up and over. Yeah. But when somebody's producing, you can really feel it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, very, very big mental change. Yes, yes. So how about what other challenges did you have or biggest struggles with managing? Well, that was the, well, <laughs> there are constant challenges with managing. Cultural things come into play. So, you know, in the beginning, we had a culture by default, so to speak, mm -hmm. which is never usually that good of a culture. Yeah. Full of toxicity and everything else. And over time, we started building that out. Uh, that eventually came down to identifying your, you know, mission and the core values, and then you implement those values, you live by those values, and and that improves the culture and, and, and makes the workplace much more pleasant to be at. And somehow, I think I got lucky. I have amazing team. Everybody is a real expert at what they do. They work hard. They produce phenomenal results in their areas. So yeah, that's, that's where I am. So at the start, you said there were cultural things that could really affect the, how you manage. When you said cultural, did you mean like your company culture? Company or did culture. you mean, okay, okay. Cause I thought you were going down the 
cultural issue of, you know, managing people who live in different countries. Well, remember, I'm from that country. So that culture is my culture. <laughs> so that's your culture, but you hire a bunch of Americans Correct. that live well, here. So I've been in the U.S. for, what, 32 years now? So I'm Americanized, but I still get that culture as well, right? So, you so at the end of- so at yeah. the end of the day, I don't think I'm Ukrainian anymore. I am fully American, but because I still get the other thing, right? I'm, I would say I'm somewhat in the middle. Oh, yeah. Because I get both. Because you're bicultural, you understand the yeah. two sides. So what are some of the differences? You sit in a unique position to say, oh, Americans think this is funny or different about Ukrainians, and Ukrainians think this is funny and different about Americans. What are some of those examples you've come across? I honestly don't know if the only funny moments we had, unfortunately, I can't really remember what they were. It's just some use of language. You know, mm. because when you translate, you run into um, snags. But outside of that, the, the culture, like that, nothing funny or not funny, it's just that people think differently. Mm -hmm. Where in Ukraine, they will work hard. For the most part, people there will execute very well tasks you give them, but they find that actual task creation is better done in the US. Hey, explain and, that to me. Uh, like identifying things that need to be done and the, how to solve the, the problems that need to be solved and how to solve them. And it might actually be either cultural or might have to do with the fact that they're not here, right? So they're not as exposed to everything that's going on in the company as, as we do in the US, in Michigan. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you haven't been able to figure out that out. I don't know if I really care which part of it it is, mm -hmm. because it just identified that it's better to do problem solving, test creation, project management here, and you know the actual work over there. And then give the tasks. So have you, have you, you've been here then through your whole professional career. So you yeah. really operated as an American business mm -hmm. person, whereas in, so you, you haven't worked up the hierarchy in Ukraine to understand like who's creating the tasks there because somebody has to be doing it. Correct. Correct. So very possible there are people there who can do that. Right. And so. Is, would you say the Ukrainian is more hierarchical or more flat organization or does hierarchical. it, it's much more hierarchical. So you would expect to get a list of tasks from your boss. I, that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, have you hired anybody in other countries? We have had employee in, I want to say maybe we tried some people in India. We had somebody in Pakistan. Uh, we have worked with people in the Philippines, but those were more project-based as opposed to full-time employment. Yeah, I think that is probably, probably it. Okay. And so working with Ukrainians, of course, is very easy for you because you speak Ukrainian, you understand the culture, you're from there, you're helping other people. When you've gone off to hire people in other countries... Has that been more challenging? Yeah, good question. Probably yes. With Ukraine, I can at least visualize things. With other countries, I can't. 
because I haven't been to India or Philippines or Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, the conversation is, hey, this is the project we have, right? This is the documentation. These are the requirements. You know, show me something that, that says that you've done this kind of work before and you can do it for me. And, you know, once they do, great, go do it. And where are my results? We had bad experiences with that. We also had good experiences. The guy we worked with in Pakistan, uh, he was doing our marketing. We worked with him numerous times. And then he eventually now lives in Switzerland and he works for Ikea. And he has a pretty big job there. Yeah. So. Okay. So he worked out great for you. You just happened to let, lose him because he went on to someplace else. Well, yeah. And the project that he was working on ended. And we didn't mm -hmm. really have other work for him. And what didn't go well? It, it's not that it was anything in particular, just that people wouldn't deliver what they were supposed to deliver. Um, you know, sometimes people overestimate their capabilities and maybe present themselves. They don't tell you everything. So you have this impression they can do it. And of course, you end up wasting a lot of time that way. But it's all, you know, you have to expect it anyways. So it wasn't cultural, it wasn't country, it was just wrong hires for the project. It, which happens all the time, yeah. It happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, if you've ever done hiring, you do. Okay, so a lot of people in the U.S. are afraid of hiring international employees, you know, with agreements and contracts and no idea who they are and the distance away and the time zone and um, you know, not knowing who you're going to hire, you know, the feeling of unfamiliarity. What experiences can you share or advice can you share for people as to why they would do it and how to minimize the risks to be successful at it? Well, a few things. First of all, the talent, when you're just limited to your locality, right, for certain positions, there might not even be a candidate that's good for you. Uh, so the more you can broaden your locality, the more you increase the potential of hiring better people. And of course, if you go internationally, where you are open to hire people in any country, right, that increases your uh, pool of candidates tremendously. In some cases, you end up saving money because mm -hmm. the standard living in those countries is lower. Therefore, the salaries are lower. In some cases, you can actually benefit from the time change. Because, for example, if you are doing a call center kind of a thing and you hire people in a different time zone, that means that they can work when you're sleeping, right? Which means that you can answer phone calls 24-7 between, you know, by having people in different time zones. Those are probably the biggest. The biggest benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as trusting and everything, you know, you just have to take a leap of faith, document your uh, job description, like really understand what you're hiring for and what your expectations are, you know, put yourself in a situation where you do the job and you do it remotely, you know, what it's like when you don't, you've never been to the company, you've never seen the people you work with in real life, right? And you will not see them in real life. And yet you still have to do the job, like what kind of resources you would need from those people, what kind of understanding you'd need from those people, what would help you if they gave you, right, to do the job better and then just try and 
do it and give it all for the people you hire remotely and trust them by default. And hopefully it stays that way. If it doesn't, you have the reasons not to trust them, right? Mm -hmm. But that goes with everybody else anyways. In general, people are good everywhere. In general, people want to do a good job. They want to learn. They want to grow. They, 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 they want to excel. Mm -hmm. So it's finding that right one. Now, you had talked about the culture by default. When you're pulling in those people, you said one of the things that was hard was building a culture with mission and values. What have you experienced with working with people from different cultures and how you bring together a company culture that works? Well, the company culture, it's different in every company, right? In our in company folders, our culture is all about being really good at what you do, grow on a daily basis by learning constantly something new. It's about uh, delivering excellence, adding value to anything you work on, and elevating others uh, in the sense that, you know, we help each other. Mm -hmm. And that kind of that kind of uh, culture is not country specific, right? That is that applies to everybody. Yes, that's very good because I give examples of a manufacturing company that focuses on zero defects. There's another company um, that's Boston Centerless, and then you have uh, 3M that focuses on innovation. And so yours really seems to be, you know, like that add value. It's learning, delivering, elevating others. So, yeah. uh, so that's a nice way to capture what does go across culture. You also mentioned that some of the funniest moments are the use of language when translation. How do you communicate in your, your company? They all speak English. Okay. And so when, you don't. When I talk to them, I speak Russian, but, uh, but outside of that, they all speak English there. So you speak Russian to them. You're all Ukrainian, but you default to speaking Russian. So in Kharkiv, uh -huh. we never spoke Ukrainian. So I never technically left Ukraine. I left Soviet Union. Because you left long ago where it was still the Soviet Union, where uh -huh. Russian was the language. And uh -huh. Russian was the national language. And majority of Ukraine spoke Russian. When you go outside of cities, you know, villages and all, People spoke Ukrainian, but in cities they didn't. I never learned. I didn't even know Ukrainian. Oh, how fascinating! Uh huh. Yeah, I studied foreign service and international politics at Penn State at college, and when I was studying, was probably about the time you were coming over, and it was all about the Cold War and the Soviet Union. And so I'm just, you know, I'm having a lot of flashbacks now about, you know, what the world looked like then. So, uh, yeah, I hadn't put the, the timing together when you were speaking, when you said you spoke Russian. And then so after you left, did more people start speaking Ukrainian in the cities or has that stayed consistent? So my understanding is that when Soviet Union fell apart, they started to have more of a nationalism in Ukraine, right, to kind of build Ukraine up. And with that, they start uh, implementing more of making Ukrainian language as an official language of the country, which totally makes sense, right? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's so because of that, more people speak Ukrainian. I don't know if everybody there speaks Ukrainian, but definitely more people. I would imagine that pretty much everybody could. But at the same time, I talked to my friends from before, like they all speak Russian and they speak Russian to each other too. Now, there is a very good chance that after this war, there will definitely be a much higher percentage of people speaking Ukrainian. Right. So after this war, I know none of, none of us have 2020 hindsight of looking at it, but you're in touch with people that are there and you Constantly. come from the country. Yeah. What is the feeling as to what after this war is going to look like? That's the most interesting thing, because I think that Ukraine is positioned when it's rebuilt, right, to be way better than it ever was, number one. Number two, I think Ukraine is positioned to be rebuilt as a leader uh, technologically. And I would not be surprised uh, that the cities in Ukraine are going to be smart cities, completely connected with you know, the buildings and traffic lights and like all of it from technological perspective. And I think that a lot of foreign investment is going to come into Ukraine very, very quickly uh, that will help build it all out. So whenever that happens, Ukraine is going to be sitting very, very pretty. Hmm. The big challenge is between now and the end of the war, because nobody knows when, how long, how. Okay, but you're really feeling like Ukrainians are going to prevail and Ukraine will come out and be redeveloped with foreign aid. I don't want to make it sound the wrong way, but I think the fact that the country is completely destroyed right now Mm -hmm. will will help because it has to be rebuilt. And if you are going to rebuild it, you might as well go all out and do it right because the whole infrastructure would have to be rebuilt in many cities now Mm -hmm. and of course i'm saying it helps the 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 country with a grain of salt because meanwhile people are dying every day Mm -hmm. and you no matter how you rebuild the country you cannot bring those people back right and that's the unfortunate part the most unfortunate part oh it's horrible it's just horrible to watch and then you wonder with the number of people that have left the country how long it goes on will depend if they will go back because they're rebuilding the lives or wherever they are. And so to have to go back and restart. Absolutely. And here locally, together with a friend of mine, we started a uh, nonprofit to, to help people of Ukraine, right? So to date, we have moved numerous orphanages to safety with supply. So we don't one of the things there is, you know, Ukraine is still a very bureaucratic country, mm-hmm. just like most countries, especially in Eastern Europe. And all the big NGOs uh, work through the government, and that uh, creates a lot of issues, right? Uh, logistical, operational, and so on and so forth. So what we do is we work directly with people on the ground. We work with people in Ukraine. Poland, Romania, Hungary, Germany, Netherlands, France. We raise funds here in the U.S. And then we send money 
so we, we work with people underground in Ukraine who basically give us feedback of the kind of supplies and food and whatever else that they need. Mm-hmm. We source it for them. So up until now, we were sourcing everything from different countries, even shipping stuff from here. Now we have identified numerous Ukrainian companies that produce things that actually started operating again. And we're starting a new initiative of helping Ukrainian entrepreneurs because now people who donate with us, we spend those money as much as we could with the Ukrainian companies, mm-hmm. which A, supports those entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. B, uh, supports people who work in those companies, right? Because now they have work to do so they can get paid. It supports their local economy. It helps with taxes for the country. Uh, the logistical issues are much easier to deal with because you're already in the country. And it's also less expensive to get it from there than from outside. Right. And 100% of the donations are going directly to recipients, right? 100%. No, 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, we have so no let's... administrative fees. We have no employees for that. We just do that by ourselves. Right. I just came from the EO conference and they were talking a lot about this. So if you're were you at GLC? I was at GLC. Do you remember Jenny Petrovich from yes. EO Detroit? So yes. she's my partner. Her and I are working She's too. your partner. Okay. Well, she was running around. So EO is Entrepreneurs Organization for our listeners. This is an organization of entrepreneurs from around the world that are amazing. They run successful businesses. They give back a lot to the community. They support each other. So I've, I'm a fairly new member. I've been in there for two years. So this was my first GLC. So Jenny was running around giving out stickers with a QR code that could take you directly to your website, which is realhelpforyourukraine.com. Dot org. Oh, dot org. Okay. I may be on the, the wrong one then. I'm glad you corrected. Oh, no, no, no. It goes there too. Okay. Yeah. Realhelpforukraine.org. And when you go there, you see a father holding a child and a donate now button. Otherwise, you can go into one of the projects, which are really impressive with how quickly you've set this up. So there's emergency food, there's support for orphanages. The uh, Pasha Servetnik was a winner of the Master Chef competition, and I've seen him on TV. That he has just been baking bread and giving it out to the city. So um, in Kherson, he's in Kherson. Uh, all the bakeries were uh, destroyed, so he was able to get one of them operational, and he bakes bread and gives it out to people for free, and we support him by paying for all of it. Right. As, as people donate to us, we send. And this this is what I meant by grassroots. Like we work directly with people. We have uh, uh, this guy whose name is Timur in Kharkiv, who we help him source food, get food, buy food, diapers, all sorts of other supplies like that. And then he distributes it literally to people who live in the area where he lives. Right. So he, I believe uh, the number is about 2,500 people that he is able to distribute it to in the the area that he's in which is south of which is the the area that gets hit the most in Kharkiv and is completely destroyed 
So why don't you tell us some of the other causes that you're donating directly to? That's fantastic. So that's that. Uh, we have delivered truckloads of food straight to orphanages. We, we provide help and support to Ukrainian refugees in other countries. Some of it is through guys at EO Poland. They stepped up enormously uh, and, and provide unbelievable amount of help and work to help those people. We also work with some people in EO Romania. We support LGBTQ community in Ukraine. We provide uh, medical supplies. Uh, tourniquets is a big thing. Uh, those are the devices that help you stop the blood when you get wounded. You know, outside of that, medication, syringes, and things like that. Protective gear is important because you have, you know, regular civilian people who are walking around with a potential of being shot or, or hit with a remainder of something, uh, some kind of a rocket or a bomb. Um, so with that, we, we help them with protective gear such as a bulletproof vest, right? You know, we, in our mind, bulletproof vest would be worn by somebody who is fighting. We are not even comprehending the fact that for you to walk on the street, you're better off with a bulletproof vest on because if you were to get shot at by chance or something blew up next to you, that will protect you. That will help you. So that's a big part of it. And, you know, obviously all the child supplies such as wipes, diapers, formula, pet food, all of it. And so, I mean, I think this is a real important point. If you're listening to that, this, this, this is entrepreneurs from EO that have bonded together throughout the world to collect money, to donate to people directly in Ukraine. And I know the people that are doing this and I can vouch that all the money is going there. This is, this is completely from their hearts and from their organizational skills, they've been able to do it. So Vladimir, what's the website again? Let's make sure people know it. Realhelpforukraine.org. And I did scan the uh, QR code when I was at GLC, which is the leadership conference that EO holds mm -hmm. once a year and donate money. And I didn't know, I wanted it to go where they thought the most urgent place was. So you can pick one of those places that you'd like to donate to if you have a passion about that, or you can pick for a general donation and then you decide, Vladimir, right? How do you decide with general donations where they go? Well, just like with everything else, things change all the time. And the general donation funds go to wherever they're needed the most right now. Mm -hmm. What do like, you think's needed the most now? So, for example, we just had an urgent need for tourniquets that we delivered uh, in Kharkiv that need arose very quickly. In some cases, it's food. In some cases, it is orphanage-related stuff. And, you know, if, for example we don't have enough money donated to just an orphanage cause and we need more Then the rest of it will come from the general fund as majority of people do donate to the general fund. Oh, is that the case? Okay. Yeah. Okay. We have some people are very adamant, like this is the money for orphanages. This are the money for LGBTQ. This is for protective gear, but for the most part, it's all general fund. Okay. And that's, and you can trust the people because they're, they're talking to the people. I would not have, 
have guessed that tourniquets would be a huge need. And that just breaks my heart to, to hear yeah. that, but better to save a life um, by using a tourniquet. Yeah. Surgical kits. Sometimes, you know, you have to do like a quick surgery on the spot as people get wounded, right? Because there are cases where you cannot even take those people anywhere, A, because you might not have anything to take them in, like a car. In some cases, there'll be no place to take them to because the hospital has been destroyed. So if, if somebody could, you know, fix your wound, even if it's in a really bad way, because people might not have the experience of it's still better than not doing it, right? Right, right. So, yeah. So again, that website is realhelpforukraine.org. And you have mm -hmm. a business owner on here that talked a little bit about his business, but is talking most about how you can donate money that would go to direct to people on Ukraine. So Vladimir, it's, I mean, I know how hard it is to to run a business, but real quickly, you've started a, uh, a nonprofit agency that is, that is helping people. I mean, it's just amazing to watch. So thank you. Thank you. How do, how do you say thank you in Ukrainian? Do you know? In Ukrainian, дякую. In Russian, спасибо. Спасибо. And, and how do you say it in Ukrainian? Дякую. Дякую. So дякую. We've run out of time. I'm sure there's so much more that we could talk about. And it, it seems hard to flip from this topic to how I normally end the, the podcast. So we're going to do it, but I'm going to adapt it a little bit. So what would you say your favorite foreign word is right now? It doesn't have to be all time, but right now. Favorite foreign word can be in any language. So even if you have an English word or Ukrainian or Russian. One word or, or like a small phrase? No, you can go for a small phrase. <laughs> so have you heard, it's, I would say it's two. Have you heard that, that phrase, Russian worship, go screw yourself? Uh, You're not familiar with that? I've heard go screw yourself in English, no, no. but I haven't. Russian in... worship, go screw yourself. Oh, okay. Only it's not no. screw yourself. It's the whole, you know, blown direction. <laughs> 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 but where it came from is there is a small island there called Snake Island. And there was a Russian worship nearby um, who, I don't remember exact details, whether they ran out of gas or they needed some kind of help, right? And they reached out to this island who's like Ukrainians and they were asking for help. And the guy looked at him, you know, because the distance was there. He looked at the ship and he said, Russian worship, go yourself. And that became a phrase that's used on, you know, you can find t-shirts that say that magnets, like all of it, but it signifies the strength of Ukraine, right? Uh, like even, even at the moment where, you know, that, that worship could destroy the island, yeah. they still chose to stand strong. Mm. Uh, that's one. And, and the other one is when Zelensky said, you know, he was offered to leave the country. Mm -hmm. He was offered to come to Israel. He was offered to come to America, Germany, wherever uh, they were offering him. They were offering to pick him up, like getting him a ride and all. And he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. 
or weapons, whatever he said, right? And once again, I, I, I think it's a pretty strong symbolic statement for what Ukraine stands for. Well, I think the whole world has just been amazed at the spirit of the Ukrainians and how strong you've been able to stand. Yeah. So it's, it's very inspirational. Yeah. And so how about a, a memorable cultural experience that you've had? When we, <laughs> when we first came here, we arrived at night uh, and, and we actually knew family who came here two months before we did. Um, they picked us up from the airport and I remember we were driving to, to their, uh, they were renting an apartment then because they were in Detroit area for like the whole two months by then. And we're driving back and I remember from the airport and I remember it was dark and rainy. So we didn't really see anything. And we get to their apartment and, you know, we, I don't remember details, but we probably ate dinner, right? Talked and went to bed. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, they all went to work. Mm -hmm. So I woke up with my parents and the lady, uh, the mother, she told my mom to have cereal for breakfast and they have Fruit Loops. I have, we have never seen cereal before. They didn't have it in Soviet Union and, you know. So, and I think she might have mentioned to my mom that you got to use cold milk, but my mom assumed that, you know, how could you use cold milk? Because that's not how you make grain, right? So she boiled the milk and she put fruit loops, fruit loops in it and she boiled the fruit loops. And to tell you that it tasted disgusting <laughs> would be to tell you nothing. <laughs> However, I ate it because, you know, that's what we had. But <laughs> then when they all came from work and, and we discussed it, like everybody started laughing so hard. And then, of course, they tried Fruit Loops with cold milk and and that was as amazing as amazing could be <laughs> until I realized at some point that the amount of sugar that you have in Fruit Loops and we, uh, yeah, so I stopped eating it, <laughs> but, but I still remember the taste and, uh, and it was phenomenal. It's fantastic. That's, I love that because I could just see the mush of <laughs> Fruit Loops in the hot milk. I mean, if you really want to see, go boil some uh, Fruit Loops. <laughs> I'm tempted, but I could get enough of an image. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, where can people reach out to you either to learn more about company folders or about the work that you're doing for Ukraine? So companyfolders.com. Uh, you can reach me through that. My email address is Vladimir at companyfolders.com. Uh, people can email me directly. Go to the companyfolders.com website or go to realhelpforukraine.org website. And there is a contact form there also that goes to me. Fantastic. Well, Vladimir, and just so you get his email right, it's V-L-A-D as in David, I, M as in Mary, I, R, companyfolders.com, or you can go to realhelpforukraine.org. And it's a beautiful website that's just amazing, the work that they're doing. So thank you so much, Vladimir, for being here today and sharing all your experiences. And I hope that anybody who's thinking about hiring people from other countries, uh, you certainly learned about how to set up a, a culture that'll work, find something that is global, and to try the different 
different places in the world where you can get employees because you can find some real hidden talent. I've been I've been amazed. I've hired from different people and it's been really easy to work cross borders and cross uh, time zones. So if you like this and you have friends that might be interested in listening to this podcast and learning more about what's going on in Ukraine, please forward it on to them. I think this is a special episode. And again, if you want to join in the conversation, go to Global Marketing and Growth, the Facebook group, and ask to join. And of course, we'll let you in. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Thank you, Wendy. All right. Great to have you here. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.